Welcome to React Roundup, and I'm Jack Harrington, your host for today. And with me are Paige. Hey, everybody. And TJ. Hey, everyone. And our guest today is Chris Laughlin. Hey, everybody. All right. Well, Chris, why don't you start us out by telling us a little bit about why you're here and what you want to talk about? Yeah. So, uh, as I said, my name is Chris Laughlin. I recently uh, published an article for SidePoint on using the WebKit speech recognition API built into the browser and then building that into a React application. So being able to like utilize your voice to potentially control an application and do different commands and interact with it in a, a novel and different way. And that's awesome. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps. First, I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web, then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. Yeah, I'm kind of a control freak, what can I say? The other reason is, is that sometimes I miss stuff or I run things in development, you know, it works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up in the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens and stuff breaks, right? I didn't configure it right. I'm an idiot and I didn't put the AWS credential in. I didn't do that last week, right? That wasn't me. Anyway, I need that error reported back. Hey, Chuck, I can't connect to AWS. The other thing is, is that this is something that my users often will give me information on, and that's, hey, it's too slow, it's not performing right. And I need to know it's slowing down because I don't want them going off to Twitter when they're supposed to be using my app. And so they need to tell me it's not fast enough, and Sentry does that, right? I put Sentry in, it gives me all the performance data, and I can go, hey, that takes three seconds to load, that's way too long, and I can go in and I can fix those issues, and then I'm not losing users to Twitter. So. If you have an app that's running slow, if you have an app that's having errors, or if you just have an app that you're getting started with and you want to make sure that it's running properly all the time, then go check it out. They support all major languages and frameworks. They recently added support for Next.js, which is cool. Visit sentry.io slash signup and use promo code REACTROUNDUP, that's all one word, REACTROUNDUP, for three free months of their base team plan. So how did you apply that in this particular case? So in this case, I kind of went through an iteration of you know building out a basic you know speech recognition function, allowing a user to be able to turn on the microphone, speak to their the browser, and then kind of thought about how I get like build this into the React way of thinking. Um, so using you know hooks is the the modern way of building React applications. So decide right, okay, let's build this in first with just a normal functional component, then start abstracting this out into a hook trying to find the bits and pieces that were you know, unique and reusable, and then created a, a use voice hook that you could then you know, start recording voice, stop recording voice, and then return that translated text. So then a React application could you know, take advantage of this. The example that I used in the, in the article was to search for all, uh, books based on the author's name. So using the Open Library Web API, you could say like your favorite authors or like Roald Dahl or um, kind of think of other authors. I can't think of any off the top of my head. <laughs> That's okay. Um, J.R.R. Token, how about that? Yeah, yeah, J.R.R. Token. So then using that to then call out that API and bring back a list of books. I think the the beauty is that you never touch the keyboard or mouse to do that interaction. It's all through vocal commands. So was there some business application that you were trying to solve with this? Or was this more of just, hey, this is a cool web API. I want to see what I can do with it. Yeah, I, I've yet to find a business API or business reason for, <laughs> for applying this yet. I think for my case, like I do a lot of kind of like 
you know, side projects where I try and take an API and, or a library and build something fun and interesting. So the first version of this application was a Giphy search. So using the Giphy's API to like search for GIFs using your voice. Because usually like I can never think of what to type out, but I can probably just say a phrase and get back like a funnel GIF. So I wanted to like apply this to see different levels. But from kind of building this out, it kind of, it made me think about different applications. So if you had a website, you could potentially have like a, a hey, uh, don't I say the keyword in case people are listening to this out loud, but hey, you know, gargle, you know, interact with my site. So like, you know, contact support, potentially, you know, tell them your problem instead of typing mm-hmm. the, the problem. Yeah, I think I've, I've seen this. This is, to me, this falls in the bucket of the sort of APIs that are pretty common in native mobile apps that I think people just don't expect to be on the web because... I know I personally don't use it, but I, I'm aware of several native apps that have this, like search is, I think, the the super common one that anytime you're searching for someone, something, giving people an option to just say it versus typing it out can be kind of handy. And a- actually, that makes me wonder, because I'm, I'm wondering, like, what the engine is under this, like, is the API good? Like, because that's, that's like my biggest concern with these things that like, I talk to these and I search for JRR Tolkien and then it's looking for like JBB Tollinger or something, something like that. Right. So when you were playing with this, like, did it do a pretty good job working with that? Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised how well it worked. Like I have uh, an Irish accent and usually like when I talk to my own like smart speaker at home, I would say 70% of the time it doesn't understand me for the browser to be able to pick us up. And I've, you know, I, I mumble towards it and I talk really fast and talk really slow and pitch <laughs> my voice. And it was still able to pick out everything. You can feed it like a grammar list. So you can say like, these are you no know, keywords that you're going to be looking out for and particular words that may or may not be understood. As far as I understand, it's it's working off like the Chrome level API. So I think Google's moved back in this with their kind of speech recognition. Yeah, that, it's sort of interesting because Considering it's a browser API, presumably each browser would have to provide their own implementation, right? Like I can't, I, I doubt it's like the W3C doesn't, like they wouldn't provide an implementation. So I imagine it would be up to like Google and Apple and Mozilla, et cetera, to sort of come up with the actual engine that drives this, right? Yeah, unfortunately, like the browser support, I think for that reason, is very minimal. I think at the moment, it's Edge and Chrome fully supported. Firefox, really low support. So you're kind of stuck with the browser that you're working with. Um, and that, that's kind of the other challenge when it came to implementing this was doing browser detection um, inside of the hook. And then, you know, with with doing conditional statements inside hooks, like you know, use effects and stuff don't play nice if you put them inside a, a conditional. So kind of having to hack around that. So you tell the user, go to Chrome where this isn't going to work. <laughs> that was I got to say a... 70%. Oops, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I got to say 70% is pretty good. My my home speaker seems to hate me and get like 30%. But I, I'm really impressed here. I think this article to me is like a twofer. You get not only this insight into this really cool speech recognition API, but also how to write a custom hook around it, which I think a lot of people tend to avoid in React. So it's good to see a demonstration of that. Is that something you do a lot, is custom hooks? Yeah, like I, I'm a full-time React developer. And with the kind of the, like these little side projects I build, usually you know always end up being like one or two files at max. So kind of building little hooks in and you know trying to abstract layers out. 
And as part of like the learning process of doing this was like, you know, how can I build this? How can I make it reusable? I probably won't use it again because you know the minute the site project's completed, it's dead and the next site project takes over. But building it into like a reusable kind of pattern at least teach me how to build scalable, reusable code. And maybe eventually I'll you know, release it as a NPM package, um, but there's probably already one out there that does this. <laughs> Well, use voice is a fantastic name. So you, you've got the, the naming <laughs> down as well. <laughs> Need to uh, buy the domain. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I am curious how you chose to deal with, because this, this strikes me as a really unique situation, like a hook that sort of like conditionally works. Uh, so I'm curious, like what approach did you take? Like what, what would look using the hook look like if you're in a browser that doesn't support these APIs at all? So if, if your enterprise doesn't support it, it'll it'll do the browser detection annoyingly in the hook. Like the state to handle what text was returned from the API and the whether it's recording or not recording because you can turn it off and on. Annoyingly, you can't have them after a conditional statement because of the way hooks work. So you can have to declare those state. They'll exist, but then an if statement will check to see if your browser supports it and it returns a value to say like, this is an unsupported browser, which then you can control like a visual message to say, you know, please try a different browser. Um, I wish that I could have had that before and not even created any of the state variables that were needed for this to work, but the nature of React kind of just made it go that way. There's a really great library out there, uh, React Use, that has a whole bunch of really great hooks on it. And it does have a a speech one, but it's actually the opposite. It's give me a piece of text and I'll speak it for you. So this could be a nice oh, okay. other side of that. So you can always PR that into that repo and uh, and get it out there. Yeah, I think so I tried said- to con- I contribute to one repo where they were taking different hooks for different uses. And one was a uh, use Konami code. So you yes. could declare a use Konami code and the, the user could type in like A, B, up, down, left, right, start, uh, and then trigger an action based on that. I've seen some other repos or some other pieces of, of code that have done that. And one of the developers that I learned from actually told me that he had done that at a previous place of employment, that if you typed in the Konami code, a fireball would come across the, the browser window, which is pretty cool. So you said that you work with React full-time in your day job. What is your day job? So I'm like a titles principal uh, software engineer, uh, but I I manage a team of UI developers working on a security bug. So I work for a company called Rapid7. Um, we do like cybersecurity. Um, so we have like a large-scale React project, our own like styling library. We build our own React component library as well. Um, so we work across those teams, kind of building, maintaining, improving our like scalability when it comes to like, building a component that can work across multiple products as well, building this into the more like usable, user-friendly, and also adding like layers of security in there to keep things you know, protected and safe. That sounds challenging to say the least. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very challenging, especially like with the code base that we work on. We'd start it whenever React was version 14 and everything was written completely different then. And when you... You have a code base of over a thousand files. It's hard to rewrite everything the the modern way of doing it. So we have like three different state uh, management libraries mixed across the code base, you know, classes, functional components, hooks, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that can be really challenging to make sure that you get that consistency across the code base. It's interesting. I, 
I'm a principal engineer as well. And it's, it's cool to see you going and investing your time into building these little projects like this and communicating that, that information about how those work. Because that's actually, I think, one of the, the primary roles of a principal engineer is that kind of education. So is this something you do a lot of is like talk to your teams, show small examples of how to do stuff? Yeah, I find like I'm, I'm very much of a do something to learn kind of person so i'll have to build little small projects i'll have to like take something like if i find someone tweaking about some new utility library i'll go off and try and build an example so i can understand it to bring that back to the team and they kind of recycle and share that knowledge because there's no there's no like well there's loads of courses now but when i started there was no formal education in javascript there wasn't like a certification you could do so kind of having to learn and it was always learning in the evenings and then bring it back into the team so now we try and you know change that pattern where doing a lunch and learn with the team, you know, maybe using a course or using some, you know, random tweet that we've seen and building upon it. Um, we had one uh, really interesting recently where we were looking at a different way of doing a switch statement. So using conditional cases, we pass in true and then the logic is in each of the cases and whether like this is a viable thing to use, when is the use case for it, how you can build it and then building out different examples so the team could understand what it meant. That's what I was going to ask is, you know, it's it's very cool to learn about this stuff, but sometimes I'm just at a loss for what do I want to learn because there's so many interesting things happening and Twitter is, you know, changing at rapid speed. So how do you how do you kind of, I guess, filter out the the grit and say, hey, this is something that actually could A, be interesting to learn about and then B, possibly be useful in the day to day of what our team is doing? I think I'm, I'm very guilty of using Twitter too much as like a pipeline for information. <laughs> but we, I think after a while, you see the pattern of someone will tweet, this is amazing, this is the best thing ever. And then two weeks later, they'll tweet and like, this is the best thing ever. And it contradicted the first tweet. <laughs> I was actually talking to a member of the team recently about like how to, you know, kind of grow your knowledge, how to you know, focus. And he was asking me about like different books to recommend. And I kind of looked more towards like recommending podcasts, like, this, this podcast is a, a great resource, but there's a number of other React ones and JavaScript ones are you, and I find they're really good because like this, these people are, you know, focused, they're trying to like, you know, share and teach. That'll filter out all the noise you get from Twitter or uh, another great resource is like uh, newsletters. So I, you know, JavaScript Weekly, React Status, those kind of newsletters can give you a good list of like, these are the articles that people have felt have some importance and they're worth looking into. There's a lot of noise and a lot of information, but it's kind of over time you learn how to filter out like, yeah, I don't need to read this or, oh yeah, I should read that. Yeah, I feel like one of the more valuable skills is you almost develop like your own algorithm for for processing all this information, right? Like if I see something come up this many times or if this is relevant to me in some way, then it reaches that level of like, maybe I should check this out. Otherwise, like, because when you first get started, you just get, it's easy to get overwhelmed because you think like everything's important. Then you realize like, eh, only a small subset is probably important to you. And learning to recognize that is almost a skill in and of itself. Yeah, I think filtering is really good because at the beginning, like I would read every article and try and understand everything. And I got to the point where like, well, what am I doing day to day that I need to improve? So like if I see a TypeScript article, I don't write or use TypeScript, I do want to eventually use it, but me keeping up with the latest advancements in TypeScript when I'm not actively doing it isn't going to help where I could be reading something else. So like, you know, is there a new 
table library out there that's you know, fast? Is there a better you know, API for talking to GraphQL or managing the state and focusing on that? Instead of learning something I know I'm never going to use, I go through the pattern of open a newsletter, add everything to the pocket, and then never read it ever again. <laughs> um, but I start tagging things like, I will eventually read this article. Usually by the time I get to it, it's out of date. <laughs> Yeah, you end up with a massive reading list. I, I I know I have several incognito windows that it's like, oh yeah, I'll get there eventually. I'll I'll read that article. I know it. And yeah, it unfortunately I end up falling into that trap of of clicking on those clickbait articles just too easily. Yeah, the the grouped tabs that Chrome introduced not that long ago have been a good thing and a huge detriment to me because I'm never going to close that group, even mm-hmm. though I'm actually never going to read those articles that I grouped together. <laughs> yeah, I seen they recently released search for your tabs, and I was like, yeah. "That's a solution <laughs> to a broken pro, like a broken solution, <laughs> and we're just making it worse." <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> Hi, That's Carl. It. Welcome to the party. Hey, hey, sorry for the late arrival. Uh, had a meeting that went, went over a bit. <laughs> No problem. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Meet Chris. And Chris did an article hey. on a speech recognition API. Yes. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Good, good. I, I'm by the I'm in England, so just across the border for me in oh, Ireland. Yes. Yeah, so that neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> and enjoying the good weather we're finally getting. Oh, gosh. I mean, today was okay in the morning, but now it's been raining a bit. So, yeah, classic English weather. Yeah. I got to say, good weather in England? That's That's not as advertised. <laughs> Unheard of. <laughs> so, Chris, I'm curious because I'm looking, you've written a number of articles for SitePoint. How did you get started kind of taking these projects that you were building and then besides sharing them with your team and with the people that you work with regularly, how did you get into like actually writing these these tutorials and stuff? So I think it started like a couple of years ago. Like most developers, I always have my own blog and you spent more time rewriting the blog architecture than writing blog posts. And I got the one where, like, when I did write a, a blog post, I was like, yeah, this is cool. Maybe I'll share it on Reddit, but no one's really going to read it. And there's no motivation to keep me learning and producing and trying to find new things. Uh, it was funny enough, it was a developer I worked with. He had written a Java article for SitePoint. And he was like, yeah, like, you can submit an article and, you know, they'll publish it. And I was like, this is, this is awesome. So this is giving me, like, a kick in the backside to say, right, you know, I've submitted this. I need to actually build and write and, you know, create an application for this post. So that kind of like snowballed from there. And every time I would post something, it's like, right, well, now I need to find a new idea to post the next one. And it kept me like really engaged with like, what can I learn new? What's brand new out there? Like one of the articles I posted recently was on uh, the React Framework Remotion. And it was like brand new at the time, building videos using React. And I was like, this is amazing. I need to you know, write about this, share so other people can see it and can't continue getting that feedback. And it's kind of, it's rewarding to see that you're sharing your knowledge or getting it out there so others can build and grow and do the same. So Remotion is really, really fun. Um, maybe you could, if you wrote about it, could explain to the audience like roughly what it is because I think it's a pretty exciting project also. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I kind of liken it to, it's almost like Windows Movie Maker but for the browser, so you can like, you, you run Remotion as like the application itself and it'll bring up a, a preview window. You can scrub through a video, but the the brilliant part is like how you actually create a video. So if I want to 
go and create a video now and like I'll, I need a graphics to move around the screen. I would have to get, you know, some software written by Adobe or someone like that and pay licensing and everything. Whereas Remotion's free, open source. I can just run that from NPM. It works in the browser. So the core of Remotion is like a library that allows you to use React components to build out frames of a video. And then Remotion allows you to export that out so you can use React, HTML, CSS, whatever you normally build a web application with, but it generates a video at the end of it. Yeah, and it's cool because I, I, I've always thought it was an interesting project because there are people out there that use like these like Adobe tools or there's other tools like it to create these things, but and there's people that are very good at that. But if you're building with web tech, if you're building with React, like it opens so many doors that you could never do with a tool like that. Like if you wanted to programmatically do some things as part of your videos, like let's say you want to generate a unique video for like each of your users, right? And bring in some like customized stats. Well, you can use a fetch call to bring in some stats and like incorporate that into your video production or like algorithmically change parts of the video based off of whatever, right? It's it's a React app. So this, the sky's the limit. And it sort of just blows my mind a little bit at the possibilities just because it's it's just such a unique idea because I would have never thought to build videos <laughs> with React, right? Like in, in my brain, like I have a segmented part for like, oh yeah, that's for like really complicated Adobe tools or ScreenFlow or Camtasia or whatever. Like that's not something I do with with web tech. That's, that's nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you mentioned like the like, kind of customization because as I was like working with it, I kept thinking like, where, where can this go? How can this get better? Because it just it runs through npm, how you normally run your code. Like, what if you set up a GitHub action that every time you re-release your like open source library, it generates a release notes video that can then automatically publish to Twitter. <laughs> um, and then I was talking to someone recently who was like big into the no code movement, where you could then utilize that so users could be building videos in a drag and drop environment, but it's all just React code under the hood. Yeah, because I mean, all you have to do like you could picture a form where you just put in what's my project, what's my version number, and then a remotion project grabs that information programmatically from GitHub, tosses it into the video, spits out a like MP4 or whatever video file. And like you said, like you could tie that into like integrations, post it somewhere. It's, it's kind of cool and kind of nuts. Yeah, I think React is actually coming kind of like a platform, right? Because you've got so many libraries that for like uh another one one for like 3d stuff one for like gaming one for this one for remotion so you can see probably in the future that react becomes this kind of platform you can kind of build all kinds of things on it as opposed to be when it started off was a library for you for your development but now it's kind of morphing into this thing where you can basically do a lot more with it than the beginning yeah, it, it yeah. sounds a little bit familiar or a little bit similar to uh recut if you've seen anything about that on Twitter that Dave, I think Dave Sedia uh, created it. And what it does is if you're filming, and I don't know if it's built with React under the hood actually, but if you're filming and you stop speaking or you flub a line or something like that, it makes it very easy to take out the, I guess the, the line that you've potentially messed up while you're speaking as well as any silences. It just automatically cuts those out, which people have been saying is really amazing for all the content creators out there. Yeah, there actually is a, like an off-the-shelf product for that called Descript, which is really good. It actually gives you a running 
tra- translation or I guess transcripts as you go. And then you can literally just like edit your, your text and be like, oh, those ums, just get rid of them. Done. And it, and it does the transition. It's very smooth. Ooh, very cool. Yeah, I'm just looking over Recut and it still amazes me that this is built with React and not like, I don't know, C++. <laughs> I had a question for Chris regarding your unblogging. Um, have you got like a workflow that you, you kind of have kind of figured out over the years in terms of you've got your drafts and then you've got your research, your ideas and your editing, publishing. Like what's your, what's your thing, like your process for your blogging like? I would wholeheartedly admit it's not perfect and it evolves constantly. Throughout the years, yeah, because at the beginning I would just start writing and then get really confused and you know get bored halfway through the article and just want to write the conclusion. But I kind of started like usually each each post is based on you know using something in JavaScript to do something or exposing like a new framework library. So I'll think of an idea of like, well, how can I take this, make it fun, something relatable that you know isn't a to-do app or isn't, you know, some sort of business logic that you would do as a practice in, in a workplace. So build out that application. As I'm building it, I'll take notes to think, you know, where are the important parts? Where did I struggle? Where did I, you know, get excited? Like, oh, this is really cool that that worked and this kind of thing. So build it a list of that. That usually then kind of forms into the, the, the contents of it, like, you know, getting started with this, running on the issues, how to debug that then build out a little bit further, kind of like go through, you know, iterations, how you could potentially change that out. And then you flesh that into the final article where it'll like flow like a tutorial, but not very much like a kind of you know, do this and then do this and copy that command, do that command, like kind of let the user figure them out themselves, but also kind of slowly guiding them along the kind of journey that I had whenever I was doing this. Yeah, I think that's a great, way to get your side projects out there. I know there is a ton of hilarious tweets about like, oh, you know, this is yet another side project that I've gotten myself into. And having that output at the end of like, hey, I'll just, you know, make a dev two article on this. And that gives me some conclusion point and something I can go back to later and take a look at if I choose to get back into it. Hey, I got my own thing written by me that explains it to me. But it's also helpful and it gets it out there and it gets it on your resume. It's like, oh, this is something else I can do. I can teach people about how to do the cool stuff like speech recognition. Yeah, like for me, it, it kind of really progressed at the start of like the, the lockdown. I was at home at all the time. I'm like, I, I need to be learning. I need to do something to keep myself busy. So I decided I'm going to start a Twitch channel. I'm going to start a series called Hello Drunk World where I you know, have a, a glass or two of wine and give myself an hour and a half to go from like an empty folder to a full application published live that you know, users can you know, access and each time try and use something I've never used before. So may it be like a random library or an API and then kind of build and grow upon that. And it gave me that kind of structure of like, I need to, and the start was every two weeks now it's, every fortnight and then it's probably turning every every month but i had this kind of fear every sunday night i need to think of a brand new idea and an application i can build using this random bit of tech to kind of learn and grow i want to watch that i'm sold 100 <laughs> it's good fun it's good to kind of do that and then i like the fact because i was explaining to some co-workers that I'm having a couple of drinks, live coding, and everyone has that fear. Like if someone's over your shoulder watching you code, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to do typos, you're, you're going to run the problems. And like, it's constantly just shouting to the people on Twitch and like, right, where am I going wrong? I can't see the problem here. Is it a missing semicolon or something else? Like someone has to help me out, especially like I'm really bad 
at CSS. So anytime you came to styling, I was like, what am I trying to do here? And like asking people in the chat, like, give me what I need. <laughs> when I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, that's awesome that it's kind of that live experience of people talking to you in real time. Although it seems like it would be difficult because I've not really done much live stream to keep up with both what you're trying to do on your own screen and what people in the chat are, are talking to you about at the same time. Yeah, it's not too bad to kind of mind. I always said at the start, like, it's fine if I ignore people in the chat. And <laughs> I, I kind of try and like think like I'm doing this alone and then I'll look off to the side when I'm stuck. <laughs> I think it might be easier if you're a little tipsy. I got to say, kind of, you know, loosely. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's like a curve where too many drinks and it's just, <laughs> it's not a coding anymore. But somewhere <laughs> in the middle there is a nice sweet spot of, uh, of a productivity where you're okay with people looking over your shoulder. Yeah, at the start, I'm very quiet and reserved. And then by the end of it, when I'm hitting that deploy button, it's like, ah, blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, no one can stop me. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I think the, the, the deploy button might have to have to have a trigger on it, you know, X number of drinks. You know, I can't <laughs> hit the deploy button anymore. Do some math before this will deploy to production. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like that Google thing. Yeah. Are you sure you want to send this email right now? <laughs> so what are some other side projects you've done that are listeners might be interested in uh, thing, well, so i think the first one i did was trying to build build an application was felt because i never used it so i was trying to come from like the react point of view to learn svelte and i was like i was building tinder for dogs uh, but trying to use svelte the whole way through it <laughs> and i think that was a kind of good one because i like started with that kind of built upon it built upon it and then kind of trying to learn how do i use state in, in this library how do i like make shareable components and trying to flesh it out I think that kind of snowballed the next time that I was working with uh, Redwood because I, I do a lot of deployments with Netlify. So I kind of like just try and stick to the Jamstack kind of style. So I was like, right, I want to use Redwood. I want to deploy a full you know, Jam architecture. It went horribly wrong and it, it never made the light of day, but kind of like learning, using the APIs, building upon it. I kind of try and always like make them make them a little bit fun and kind of quirky. So there's one of the reasons where like I was interested on everyone wants to make bundle sizes smaller and optimize you know, what libraries they bring in their product. And there's always people talking about like, oh, you know, this library ships and it's, you know, not point, not, 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 you know, one megabytes. I was like, you know, how does that relate when you think about it physically? So I built a, a site where you could give it the URL and it'll go off and fetch your site, pull all the JavaScript files, and then tell you how many floppy disks it would take to hold that website. <laughs> And then on the top awesome. like you could upload your uh, webpack stats JSON file and we do the same. So we said like, you know, it would take five floppy disks to you know, carry your site. I love that. Totally right. <laughs> <laughs> relatable. The folks that actually know what a floppy disk <laughs> is. 
Yeah, I think a lot of the, well, I imagine a lot of my viewers are of my time and era. <laughs> I will remember those days. <laughs> so did you find it helpful learning Svelte? Did it help inform the stuff that you do in React? I haven't had enough time like after the kind of streaming on it, but it was interesting to see just how they approach things, how they thought about like structure, I think it was, I was more looking from like a kind of structural project sort of thing than the actual syntax because they, they'll never really kind of mirror up. Um, but it kind of gave me an insight. They're like, this is how they're thinking. This is how they're building out their products. You know, what way are they thinking differently from a normal reactive? Um, it is something I want to explore more and learn about because it's it is gaining popularity. It seems to have you know a lot of advantages. So I'm curious to see where it's going to go, how it's going to end up. Absolutely. So you're saying we instantly rebrand the podcast. This is now Svelte Roundup. Is that, <laughs> is that a go or is that a no-go? <laughs> Maybe some more episodes on React. There's <laughs> more for, for me to learn, at least. I feel like a, a React versus Svelte kind of showdown will be um, in order. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds fun. You can throw View in there as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That sounds actually really, really fun. I've, I've been meaning to actually find some time to actually look at Svelte and actually try and build uh, kind of a application. And then I saw yesterday as well, there was a new one that came out called Solid.js. And it was built by one of the persons who works for eBay on their Marco UI. So it was published, I think, this week. And it seems to be um, getting quite the, the buzz. So maybe it's the new hotness. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. See, this gets into what we were talking about earlier of like trying to process when something's relevant or not. And like, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm still hitting the pause button on Svelte even. Like it's getting to the point where it's like, it's approaching close enough that I want to take a look at it. But like, I I tend to be super conservative on these things. So I, I wait until it's like hit mainstream essentially before I dive in. No, I'm with you actually. I think for me, I, I like to look at like, the job um, job requirements and actually see how many are, are now asking for a particular framework because that's a flavor of whether or not that tool has become kind of mainstream and has got like a mass behind it as opposed to it's too for the cool kids. That are <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely took notice when I first started to see Gatsby mentioned among like static site generators for some companies. I was like, oh, that's that's really, it's becoming a thing. That and Next. Like Next has just taken off, it seems like, for good reason too. I get it. So I've got a question for y'all. So GitHub Copilot, is that actually going to stall new platform development? Because what it essentially means is you have to have a certain amount of open source code out there for folks to be able to use Copilot on your platform. So unless you have that initial momentum, right? How, do you, how is that going to work? Is it going to, so yeah, question for y'all. Okay, so I'll start by just saying maybe for the listeners and for me personally, maybe you could just explain what GitHub Copilot like is and what it does. Because <laughs> sure, I've, I've sure. heard the name, okay. but I don't totally understand what it is. Right, it's an AI extension for, I think it's just VS Code at this point, I don't know. But you essentially just type in a comment and then run this copilot on it and the co and the, the comment can be something along the lines of give me a function that multiplies two numbers and it will literally give you a function in whatever environment you're in that 
potentially matches what you asked for. You know, you could say, give me all a list of all the Pokemon, and it might use a fetch API to go and get all of the, the Pokemon. And it's essentially using GitHub and all of the repos in there as a, a training set for this AI. And then it's, you know, there's this essentially, I guess, a variant on the GPT-3 AI engine that's customized more towards code that then essentially pulls out a fragment and gives you the, the code that would do that. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, like, you know, will it, will open source code become stale because you know, potentially this AI is right and everything? But will it get to the point then where so much was written using an AI that the AI then starts suggesting its own AI generated <laughs> code? So, like, at the minute, it's, it's harvesting <laughs> all this manual code that was written by people. And eventually, it's going to be all this code written by an AI. So it's just t- giving its own results back. I guess it's inevitable and will happen extremely quickly. <laughs> Personally, I'm always skeptical of the, these sorts of things. So I, I have not tried it. I, I would be kind of fascinated to, to play with this. So I'm going to have to poke around with this is afterwards. But any of, any of these sort of like algorithmically decided things, especially for code, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm just skeptical. I, I have trouble believing that the GitHub API is smart enough to be able to generate code that's going to actually solve problems for me enough that I'd actually want to use it. But I've also been wrong about this sort of thing before. But my initial reaction is skepticism that this will be useful. I've I've seen a little bit about it and I haven't played with it yet either. But one thing that I have seen that people are at least a little bit upset about is how, I guess, maybe how GitHub is classifying open source code because different repos have different levels of you can use this without any attribution or you must use some sort of attribution that you're borrowing from this. And I don't think that the AI is is doing much in the way of filtering or or doing attribution for sources that it's getting this code from. I could potentially see it being useful, but I also, like you, TJ, I'm a little skeptical that the good old manual way of figuring stuff out, the brute force method, and then refining it and refactoring it into something that makes more sense to everybody besides you who wrote the code. Yeah, like, well, off the top of my head, I'm like, like your example, like, if I need a function that multiplies two numbers, I'm sure this tool is great. But like the day-to-day problems I'm solving is I've got like my widgets and a function and the widgets have like these three properties that are unique to my company. And I need to do some conditional logic based off of it, right? And AI is not going to really help with that. So it, it might help me Google some like preventing from Google things like that stupid thing. Like, how do I capitalize the first letter of like a, like a string? Like some of those stupid things that we've probably searched 20,000 times and like seen the same Stack Overflow post. Like, seems like it would help with that, like save me a step. But for like the real logic, I need to write like the, the nitty gritty stuff. That's the part I guess I'm skeptical about. Yeah, I think in practice, you sometimes don't do things that code got right away because for that particular solution, it works. But I'm guessing the AI might be like, no, this is the right way. But you're thinking, no, for this solution, <laughs> it's okay to break the rules because I need to make this work. So yeah, definitely. I think it won't be practical for those kind of day-to-day tasks, but um, maybe like a fun thing to play around with. And if you want to be, yeah. yeah like the examples I've seen it's been very accurate and it's built really good code. But as you said, like it's it's always small stuff. Like I need to fetch a list of users and that kind of thing. So it's 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 saving you copy and pasting from Stack Overflow, which I don't think it 
we should be removing this or write a passage of going to Stackerel being told to use jQuery, <laughs> even though you're searching for something completely different uh, and learning that experience. Uh, I've seen recently there's been reports that it's potentially throwing out API keys and secrets. Mm, yes. You accidentally committed the code. And I'm like, hmm, this is where it gets fun and interesting. <laughs> Well, and that's that's a good point, actually. Not not necessarily that we're copy pasting from Stack Overflow, but learning to ask the right questions to find the answer that you need is such a crucial part of becoming a decent developer. It's like that is that is a huge part of every developer's job is how do I phrase this so that I can actually find an answer that makes sense for my use case. And the other thing that I was just thinking about is so much of what we do is writing not very good code the first time around and then figuring out through experience and through pull request comments and through just building more stuff, how to write better code the next time around. And if we have an AI kind of suggesting this is either the best way to do it or this is the right way to do it from the get-go, there's a lot less of that learning experience, I think. And and being able to go back six months later and say, wow, this was really not very good. Now I think I can write it a lot better and a lot cleaner. Well, you could make the argument, though, you still have to find a way, right way to ask the robot your question, too. <laughs> good <laughs> point. I'm, I'm sure like the robot could potentially interpret different things depending on how you like phrase your comment, because... Somewhere deep down in the source code, something is parsing those search strings and feeding it to its algorithm or whatever it's doing under the hood. It's like the same process, but like uh, different. Yeah. Uh, it was you mentioned like pull requests. Like if if someone raises the pull request and some of the code was written by the AI, are you going to comment on it? Or are you going to say, well, I don't like this? <laughs> <laughs> Fix this, right? <laughs> There's also that question as well about legality, right? Um, I remember the case, I think was it was it Uber? Um, was it last year or the year before where a lady was hit by a, a car that was um, driving itself, if you like? And then the key is, okay, so the, the software, if it's in that moment AI, who's liable? Is it Uber? Is it the developer? Like, how do you, like, that legality becomes also kind of a gray area because obviously the person behind it is, is, is AI. So the AI can't be held accountable because it's not a person. But yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question because I, I guess going forward as well, as more and more kind of AI gets, in, gets into your day-to-day lives, that's going to be, become a, um, a topic that needs to be kind of addressed and sorted out otherwise, yeah. I think it's one of the issues around AI is the fact that a lot of this is just training sets and models and we don't really understand why it works. We, we've trained it. We understand how the weights work and it creates this model, but we don't really understand this is why, you know, we've got out the slide rule and we did the calculations and yada, yada, yada. I mean, nowadays, you know, when we land something, it's more by training it on tons of failure as opposed to actually doing all the math and figuring out, oh, here, here's how you hover slam a rocket. You know, maybe you do. I don't know. I'm not a rocket scientist. But uh, yeah, it's certainly interesting Certainly interesting legal challenge around this. Boy, wow, we have come really far from speech recognition <laughs> APIs, but not maybe not. Well, not, maybe no, not no, far see, AI. Visual Studio Code is web based. They could implement, and it's, I believe it's Chromium based too. They So the web speech API should be there, right? Like it could, you could use the speech recognition API 
to feed into the robot, right? You don't even have to write comments. You just <laughs> use your voice, the robot. You could just dictate your code, right? And the robot's going to fill in the blanks for you. That would be amazing, actually. Just, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm lazy, so I'll just be talking to the right. Okay, so line, yeah. uh, const, <laughs> variable name, x yeah. equals open bracket. <laughs> Briss, you've got your next article right here. <laughs> yeah, let's take that VS Code oh, extension and stack on it. <laughs> put that. Yep, there it is. Nicely done. Well, I think this is a great time for picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. And let's start out this week with Carl. Yeah, so I've got one pick today, and it's not really a pick but I subscribe to a number of different front-end or JS emails. But what I've been doing lately is actually subscribing to, to emails about things in my, my domain. For example, right now, I subscribe to a, a, an email on Elixir, uh, one on how to be a tech lead, and there's another one on a, on a different topic. And I, I do so just to um, every week, when I go through my um, emails and look at the latest news, it basically helps me kind of see what's happening outside front end, outside JS. And sometimes you find an interesting article about this thing in Elixir or whatever. And I think it's good to get that kind of rounded view of what's happening outside your kind of domain. And um, yeah, I definitely recommend it. Just try and find something outside your language or framework and just be um, keeping up to date on that every single week. Couldn't agree more. How about you, Paige? My pick this week is going to be a keyboard. It is the Logitech MX Keys wireless keyboard. And I recently, I bought one this past weekend. And this thing is awesome. It is low profile. It is quiet because I am not a lover of mechanical keyboards that make so much noise that you can't hear yourself. And it is, so far, it's just been amazing. It paired up well. It has three different toggles. So you can have three different computers paired to it. And it works for both Mac and Windows and probably Linux. And it's just been, it's fantastic. So I would highly, highly recommend that if you are not a mechanical keyboard enthusiast and you want something that's quiet and feels just right on your in your hands, it's got a good weight to it. It's Bluetooth compatible. It's it's pretty sweet. I I very much would recommend it to anybody who's looking for a new one. Nice. I love their mice. All right, Chris, what do you got? Mine is kind of like a utility application uh, script kit by uh, John Lindquist. Uh, I recently did a side project on this before, and it's like in macOS you have like Spotlight, we can do command space I and mean, then type for files. With this, you can do alt space and you get like a pop-up where you can type in and run commands. So like open up a Google search or you can move windows, but it's built on JavaScript. So you can write your own scripts and it has an API. You can use NPM. So you can do whatever you could do with JavaScript, like call servers, interact with the machine and write it on JavaScript and run it on your machine. I think it's really cool. Oh, that's awesome. I totally am going to look at that. That's great. TJ? Yeah, I'm going to pick something called the Manfrotto Magic Arm. It's basically an arm for mounting something like lights or like a more heavy-duty camera. I've been 
doing some work in the the home office and I got a nicer camera and I was spent a lot of time researching something that would actually hold it and found this thing. It's a little pricier. It's like a $150 arm. So like, you don't want this for like a, a really like light thing. It's designed to be a little more heavy duty, but if you have something that's heavier and that you need to mount somewhere, if it's a light, it's a, a camera or whatever, it's good. I am like the world's worst person at like putting things together and setting things up. I'm comically bad at it. And even I was able to figure it out and it's incredibly configurable. It's got like three different joints so you can kind of fit it in anywhere you need. So I'll put the links in the in the uh, show notes so I don't have to read out the numbers, but it's a Manfrotto magic arm and I've, I've liked it. Yeah, Manfrotto is great. I've got one of their tripods and they've got a nice little interchangeable system that you can use so you can take the same connection that's on your tripod and put it onto any of their stuff, I think. So that's, that's really handy. All right, so my pick for this week is Solid JS. So I don't know if you've taken a look at this yet, but it's essentially, if you're looking for the Svelte speed, uh, but you don't want to leave React World, SolidJS is a really good alternative. It's kind of as if somebody reimagined React starting at like 2020. So it's all functional components. It's all uh, reactive. So it's all using kind of hooks and similar kind of if this data changes, then update this kind of thing. And it is wicked fast. So it is certainly something to look into. If you still want to have components, you still maybe want to do the micro FE thing. You don't want to lose familiarity with React, but you do want something that's just crazy fast. Uh, SolidJS is a cool thing to look into. Nice. All right. Well, that I think wraps us up for this week. Tune in again next week for React Roundup. See you then. See you, everybody. Yeah, cheers. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.